Today on episode number 377 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Lauren Bolera joins me to talk about critical thinking in theory and practice. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Dr. Lauren Bolera is the Director of Research and Impact for the Brilliant Club, a charity whose aim is to widen access to highly selective universities for pupils from underrepresented groups in the UK. Lauren is also part-time associate lecturer at Birkbeck University of London. Lauren completed a Fulbright scholarship in 2019 at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. Her research focused on the critical thinking skills that are prioritized in higher education. This project stemmed from her earlier research at the University of Cambridge, UK. Lauren continues to collaborate with education organizations in the U.S., including the Association of American Colleges and Universities. Lauren, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you. We begin a lot of shows about important concepts like critical thinking with setting some definitions. Is there a set definition for critical thinking? That's a really good question, Bonnie. It's, um, yeah, it's a lot of people's work and focus from a research perspective because really defining critical thinking is a, is a really difficult thing. And I think defining it in a practical way that when you're trying to teach students both in a school context and a higher education context, you really need something concrete. So, you know, there are, if you look at the literature, there are many, many definitions of critical thinking. But when I think about critical thinking, I always think about analysis and evaluation. So what I try to do is pinpoint the, the critical thinking skills that I think are most important across a range of subjects and across a range of disciplines. So, yeah, we, I'm sure we'll talk about it more, but that's sort of generally what I tend to think about when I think about critical thinking. I've been airing weekly podcasts since June of 2014, and I've had one other episode besides yours on the topic of critical thinking, and it was so early in me. I mean, I still feel early. You know, the more you know about something, the less you yeah, realize. the less you know. <laughs> yes, but I re- that what I remember from that episode was walking away from it thinking, wow, there are a lot of different ways to think about this. And what she really stressed on the episode was the importance of us talking about it with one another. And those conversations are so critical. And sometimes our cultures and circumstances allow for that. And sometimes they don't. Would you talk about the different ways that you have seen various disciplines think about critical thinking and and where you see similarities across disciplines and where you see some differences? Yeah, absolutely. So I've really thought about critical thinking across the humanities and social sciences. And what I think is really fascinating that even within the humanities and social sciences where you know, you, you might think there are quite a lot of similarities and you know, we, we do see some similarities, but we also see quite a lot of differences. So, you know, if we think about, just to give an example, if we think about sort of psychology versus history, for example, they, they might overall identify exactly the same sets of critical thinking skills, but 
you know, there might be some subtle differences in terms of the ordering and the sequencing of how they prioritise their different skills. So thinking, um, just to, to give a few examples, so thinking about with psychology, often um, like analysis is, is sort of recognised as one of the most important skills. And that's also recognised as a really important skill in history, but also the that evaluation part comes into play much more quickly because you think about history where you're looking at sources and you're sort of evaluating and sort of critiquing sources, that becomes really important. Whereas in psychology, you know, sometimes it's a bit more about data and really that kind of analysis of information and analysis of data. So, you know, I think in terms of, you know, and then we try and connect it through to STEM and we think about critical thinking in a STEM context. This, this is something which I think is really quite different to humanities and social sciences. So again, I think, you know, sort of a, a similar array of critical thinking skills would be discussed, but really that ordering and the sequencing would be slightly different. So, you know, in the humanities, potentially problem solving might be ranked as least important, but problem solving in a, in a, in a STEM context would be really important. So, you know, I think a lot of it with critical thinking is really understanding the subject context in which teachers and, and students are operating in, because, you know, we are going to see a lot of similarities, but I think it's really critical that we understand the key points where there are differences. In your research studies, in, in some of them, and, and you asked educators to rank the following 10 skills. I'll read them in just a moment. From the most important skill down to the least important, you listed analysis, evaluation, interpretation, inference, explanation, inductive reasoning, creativity, problem solving, description, and deductive reasoning. You've talked a little bit about how those 10 have shaped your definition of critical thinking, but would you speak more broadly about some of your findings around when you ask various educators to rank those things? Yes, yeah, absolutely. So this this was a study, again, focused on humanities and social sciences instructors, both um, both in the UK, because I'm UK-based, but I also did a, a Fulbright scholarship in the US. So I was really interested in understanding the, uh, the probably slightly different, but also quite similar education context in which both the UK and the US uh, higher education sort of you know, higher education system operate in. Well, see so what I did, as, as, as you said, is I got, I got academics to rank critical thinking skills uh, in order of importance. And it was really interesting because before I did this, and we sort of we asked you know, 200 instructors, we just shy um, 200 instructors overall, to, to go through this ranking exercise, I didn't really know what we were going to find. I actually thought we might find a complete disarray of just like, we know, you know, lots of differences across, across the humanities and, and social sciences. And but really kind of remarkably what we found is that we saw a really, um, a really clear level of consensus. And this, this is in, uh, in terms of, sort of, you know, we did significant testing to look for the significant differences in the ranked choices. And what we see is that analysis, evaluation and interpretation overall are ranked as significantly more important. And then kind of on the flip side, in terms of our skills, which are least important, we see that creativity, deductive reasoning, description and problem solving are least important. And I think you know, the really key thing here is that we're not saying these skills aren't relevant, but when you're asked to do a force, a rank force exercise, I actually think practically it's really important because when you're teaching students, you have limited time. So all of the time you're making particular pedagogical choices about where you're going to focus and where you're going to 
really support your students to develop particular skills. So this, in terms of the data we got from it, it was really, really fascinating because what we see overall is we do see a consensus, but for those with those sets of skills in terms of most important and least important. But then we saw a, a couple of differences at the subject level. So just, just to draw um, a, a couple of examples. So I've just, just got the paper and the analysis in front of me. Okay, yeah, so we, so we had significant differences across the subjects, except for the subject of philosophy, where sort of descriptively we had very similar trends, but you know, probably because of the sample size, we didn't quite reach, um, we didn't quite reach significance. Um, and also what we had for history is that we had problem solving, problem solving was ranked as least important. And then we didn't, um, we didn't sort of see that pattern in psychology, for example. So the overall, we're seeing these broad patterns, but we're seeing a couple of subtle differences and also a couple of subtle differences between things that are statistically significant and not statistically significant. So that, yeah, that is also interesting to observe as well. In my own teaching, and also as I have had the great privilege of being able to coach faculty over many years now, I see a broad thing that happens to many of us. We start out, and I definitely started out having no idea what I was doing. And it's very easy to get focused on content. And the phrase that I'll often hear that is sort of an alarm bell would be, I need to cover this. And if you adopt a textbook that someone else has adopted, there can be this temptation to think, oh, gosh, I have to cover this huge textbook. And I don't know, I, I don't even myself in many cases, you might not know the entire textbook and that can create insecurity. And then when we're able to shift over that we don't have to cover things that people memorize. And often if we try to do that, we recognize as we start to evolve what we're missing, an opportunity to grow critical thinking skills have you seen that in your own teaching, the shift where you go, no, it's not about covering materials. <laughs> and, and I don't mean to insinuate that we don't need to build bodies of knowledge. But again, did you see that shift where in, in your own teaching or have you seen that in the research where you go, wow, uh, that it takes some of the pressure off and yet adds pressure on in some really important, fascinating ways? I mean, I think it's really fascinating because I think often what we tend to do when we're teaching is that we think it has to, I think we like to put things in a bit of a dichotomy. So either you're teaching knowledge or you're teaching skills, but apparently it's not possible to do both at the same time, which, you know, as, as you know, from the research literature and, and hopefully our own experiences in, in the classroom, it's not, you know, that that's not the case at all. So I think, I think I, I've sort of, you know, when I look at kind of my teaching experiences over um, sort of since completing my PhD, I think to begin with, you do feel this sense of like, I have to cover everything on the syllabus and sort of this, this kind of relentless drive through that irrespective of whether the students are with you and kind of not doing any kind of reflection piece about your pedagogy or whether the students are really following, you just need to get to the next thing. And I think it's really important sort of you need to really have confidence that and also to feel like you have the control that if you need to slow things down a little bit from a knowledge perspective, you should do, but also, so I think this is also something which I've thought about with my own teaching previously, is that 
I sort of thought, you know, we would do all of the knowledge stuff. And then at the end, you do critical thinking. And, you know, you, you also see that a lot in school teaching as well. So I, I definitely remember my, uh, doing my A-levels. You know, we get through all of the subject content. It's really, really intense. And then in like the last lesson, they're like, oh, and this is how you do critical thinking. And I think, you know, it's, it's just... It's just not the way to do it. What we really need to do as, as we go through it is to explicitly embed it into your teaching. And, and really, as you're teaching that subject knowledge, to also be thinking that to be teaching those critical thinking skills, but really to be calling it out. So, you know, not just setting it in your learning objectives, never referring to it ever again, but, you know, saying to students, okay, I'm teaching you a bit about critical thinking now. And here's a couple of examples and things we can walk through. And then, you know, sort of really spelling, spelling out to the students the interaction between the subject knowledge and the critical thinking, because like these two things need to happen together. It's not a pedagogical choice about, that you're either teaching knowledge or, or critical thinking. I think if like, especially if you're working with younger age groups in the school context, there's probably a bit more thinking to do around the sequencing. So really making sure they have you know, a, a good enough knowledge base to then kind of think critically as we kind of move through into sort of late, um, what I would call kind of late secondary school education and higher education, we have to have the confidence that we need to be presenting both those things together, but also we need to be doing those knowledge and those critical thinking skills checks with students. So if, if for whatever reason they're not following you along and they're not going with you, we need to take, you know, really take the opportunity and take the moment to pause. And, and think about, okay, what do we do from a knowledge perspective, but also what do we do from that critical thinking perspective? I'd love to hear a little bit more about, yes, of course, your perspective is informed by your research, but for you personally, why do you think critical thinking matters so much? Yeah, it's a question I, I think about a lot because, you know, when you're making choices about sort of research you focus on all the kinds of things you want to engage with from a pedagogical perspective, you know, sort of thinking about why in, in particular I've landed on critical thinking. And, and I know sort of lots of people don't really like the term, but often when we talk about critical thinking, we talk about 21st century skills in, you know, sort of 21st century implies that it wasn't needed previously, which definitely is not the case. Critical thinking has always been a really important part of any, any young person's. But I, I think what we can recognise, and especially thinking as we kind of exit the pandemic, Really, a lot, a lot of, a lot of stuff has shifted, both from an education perspective, but also from an employment perspective. So, really, sort of thinking more and more that critical thinking is going to be really important going forward. And you know, the reason I think about it so much, I think it's so important, is that I work for a, a university access charity in the UK called the Brilliant Club. So, we work with young people to help them progress to universities in the UK and in particular to the most competitive universities. And if I think about the kinds of students we're working with, I think a lot of the, you know, so a lot of the, the outcomes we're trying to drive towards are things to do with self-efficacy. So self-efficacy and, and competence for that kind of level of university-style learning. So we're working with you know, school students and we're trying to make sure we can take them through and get them through to university if that's, if that's the right choice for them. In, so we have all this stuff around competence stuff, efficacy, but linked to that is really a core set of academic skills that essentially the, these students and, and all students will need to really to be able to progress, but also to be able to succeed at university. So for me, critical thinking is just a really important life skill that 
it isn't something and like knowledge isn't something which you learn and then you either use or you don't use but you know critical thinking really has to interweave through everything we do yeah i i think about i teach a couple times a year in a doctoral program and it's a class called technology and leadership and you speak of self-efficacy and i used to teach that course before i knew what i was doing that I would teach it more as a knowledge base and there was a textbook and all of that. And then I just realized there were so many barriers that had to do with people's sense of self-efficacy that if I couldn't release them from some of that would pretty much make all of the other work that I did be pretty meaningless. I did want to mention, you mentioned self-efficacy and this doesn't happen to me very often, but I was on Twitter the other day and saw that Al Bandura, who is the I don't know if he coined the term self-efficacy, but he certainly was the primary researcher in that. And it's the first time I've ever had somebody who I cited in my dissertation show up somewhere in my life outside of, you know, that very narrow focus for (laughs) one's dissertation. So cheers to Al Bandura, who passed away at the age of 95. And we're recording this episode in late July. And so what a celebration of his life and all the impact that there was lots of people who... I mean, I just only had known him from afar, but there were lots of people commenting who he had touched their lives and their research in some ways. It was really cool to see that. Yeah, he's had a really big impact. And I think, you know, we, and also I, I don't think people realize sometimes that when we're talking about things, we're actually talking about self-efficacy. So I think, you know, when we come back to this point around kind of definitions, et cetera, right, and sort of do different types of terminology, you know, when we're talking about things like confidence and kind of especially confidence for future events, you know, we're talking about Vangira's work, right? We're talking about self-efficacy. Yeah. So you spoke a little bit about this as well in terms of not just why it might be important to that individual, but also why it might matter to employers. What have you found when it relates to that as a component of your research? I think the employer component is, is really interesting. And, you know, it also appears to be quite an under-researched area. So you know, I know we have sort of snippets in terms of, especially in uh, in the US. So I think you, you know, you have a bit of a broader coverage in terms of, from a research perspective, kind of more studies seem to pop up in the US to do with employers' views. And also just a bit of a shout out to the Association of American Colleges and Universities, which does a lot of work to promote liberal education and critical thinking in higher education in the United States. And you know, they, they have an, an annual survey where they ask employers to, to sort of rank different critical thinking skills and also other skills as well. So I suppose because of the, you know, these other sort of 21st century skills, we would talk about things like communication, leadership, et cetera. And I think what we see is a really interesting interplay. So, you know, we see that we see employers saying that, you know, critical thinking amongst other skills is really important. But then also what we see is that employers are saying that, you know, college graduates, university graduates are coming into the workforce and they're not fully equipped with all of the skills and especially they're not fully equipped with all of the critical thinking skills. And so you know, I think just that in itself makes it sort of really explicit as, as to why critical thinking is really important. But I also think there's another kind of interesting component, which is you have employers saying critical thinking is really important and then they're sort of leaning on higher education institutions to teach critical thinking and then, you know, potentially you might have higher education institutions and kind of leaning on schools and saying, well, they're in schools for much longer. They kind of need to come to us a bit, you know, a bit better prepared, you know, and then we, we, we can do kind of a few more things with them. I really think what we need to do is really see it as a system level approach. So 
we're talking about schools, university and, and employers all having a joined up approach together. And, you know, I think some of it is just making sure we're having these shared, you know, shared conversations, but also we're having a shared understanding of, of what we mean by critical thinking, because we can't really treat it as a piecemeal thing. So, you know, we know there are gaps, there are issues and gaps in employment. We also know in, in an HE context, you know, there are real challenges of, of teaching critical thinking effectively. It isn't it isn't because the, the lecturers or the teachers aren't doing their very, very best. It's because critical thinking is an incredibly difficult and complex thing to teach. And, you know, we might be able to teach it in a particular subject, but then it's very difficult to see transfer across subjects and to provide deep sort of, you know, what follows from that is it's very difficult to see it transfer into employment. So really the only way around that is we need a much more connected approach and we need, we need bridging between all of these different transition points, which, yeah, I think it's slightly broader than your question, but I think, you know, the issue of employment and that it's really important there, we, and like, it really needs to be connected up, right? Because we can't just keep passing, we can't keep passing blame onto the next institution. Yeah, we need to sort of, we need, we need to take a collective approach. I'm so glad that you took the question there because it's reminding me of so many things in terms of the importance of not just having a definition and then we're done. To me, this is ongoing conversations about what our aims are and how we can get better ourselves at helping people attain those aims. When you were talking about self-efficacy, sometimes we think about it in terms of that can hold people back. And, and so if you're not very confident in your academic skills and you don't really have a lot of different contexts where you've been able to encounter educators in different ways, it could seem like I have just found where I'll, I'll sit down and talk with students about exams and they'll go, oh, I didn't realize that I need to think about. It. I'm realizing more and more that I actually need to. It sounds really condescending the way it's coming out of my mouth and I don't intend it all the way. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that there's so much unlearning that has to happen before or, or, or perhaps during the process then of being able to, to grow these skills. That if we can't kind of flip that switch that says this is accessible to you, this is what it is, and here's how we're growing. And as you were saying earlier, doing it over time, you mentioned that employers really look for communication. It's always in the studies I've seen top three. I mean, I've never seen one that isn't the top three. And that certainly can be a challenge at so many organizations that we work in. But then people don't spend the time unpacking that. What does that mean to you? <laughs> when If we're terrible at communication, <laughs> let's break it down to what those challenges look like, the implications of those challenges before we could just go, well, you need to be able to write better, speak better. And, and what does that even mean? So there's so much here that I'm seeing you describe carrying across the context of employment with, of course, the context. We, we, we would hope that our classes would be very close to the context in which we're preparing our students. This is probably the most important part of the interview, and, and I'd love for you to share some practical ideas for us. What suggestions do you have for developing critical thinking skills in our students? That is an excellent question, and I, I feel like it's a million-dollar question. <laughs> it's, I mean, I have some thoughts and, and some reflections from my research and also sort of wider, wider reading and, and teaching practice in you know, I sort of, I, I'm going to say these things and I know, you know, people are going to be like, well, that's really, it seems really obvious. But I think the funny thing is, is that often it's the simple things we don't do or we overlook when we're trying to prep the teaching or we're thinking about how to 
you know, how to convey a really complex topic or, or set of skills to students that, you know, a lot of it is really just in the structuring and, and, and really sort of doing things really explicitly because if, you know, if we take um, the example of when you're trying to teach somebody knowledge, you know, now from cognitive science, we have these really clear ways, you know, things like retrieval practice. And, you know, I feel like we have this sort of this toolkit of toolkit of really concrete things we can do. And, and really what, what I would like to do is to see that more and more for critical thinking. So, you know, really taking the science of learning approach. And I know, you know, um, other researchers as well. Um, so Pooja Agarwal, for example, is, is, you know, her, one of her recent publications was to do with critical thinking and and higher order thinking and um, retrieval practice. So, yeah, I suppose from a, a theoretical perspective, I'd, I'd really like to see kind of even more of that connection coming through from, a, you know, from sort of connecting up the, the cognitive psychology and then kind of weaving it through to, to critical thinking. And sort of my sort of immediate recommendations and tips with critical thinking is that we know from the evidence it has to be explicitly taught. And again, this sounds really obvious, but from my research survey, but also other research papers, it's really clear that across both school and university teaching, the kind of primary method of teaching critical thinking is implicitly. So not, you know, not, not explicitly calling out learning objectives, not explicitly embedding particular activities or, or, or scaffolding, you know, scaffolding your teaching to really kind of highlight when you're when you're teaching critical thinking. So, you know, sort of at a really kind of basic level making sure that we teach critical thinking explicitly. I think the next step from that is a bit more challenging because, okay, after you say, okay, you should teach it explicitly, obviously what follows is, well, how do you do that? In, you know, there are, there are a couple of different ways. So, you know, obviously that the learning objective point, I think is really powerful because, you know, some of this is about confidence and self-efficacy. So, you know, all, like all of these cognitive outcomes are really closely connected. So, you know, saying to students, we're going to learn about critical thinking and we're going to support you to develop key skills. And you will already have a lot of these skills, but for the most part, you just won't realise you're doing it. So, you know, sort of to your point, Bonnie, I think like the conversation point around critical thinking is really important. And we shouldn't just be having that conversation with ourselves. We should also be having it with students and we should be having it on a regular and consistent basis. And then just to, to point to a couple of activities that I think are particularly effective in this, these really come off the back of some, a group of academics and a group of critical thinking researchers that I spoke to when I was doing my, my research in the US. And, you know, sort of collectively, they had sort of decades upon decades of experience of both teaching, but also research and critical thinking. And I think those two things are really important because what we want to is really bridge. We want to bridge between the academic research and critical thinking. And we want to then sort of connect it through to critical thinking and in teaching practice. So just, just to give a couple of examples. So again, this might sound quite simple, but I think sometimes it's overlooked. You know, the use of questions and questioning and especially instructor-led questions can be really effective because if students are thinking at one level and often they're thinking at the knowledge level, that's really going to help them to sort of move, move up and to really, you know, to respond to these more challenging questions, but also to start to think about it for themselves. And, you know, I... I know sort of Bloom's taxonomy is sort of referenced on and off in, in different contexts, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not sort of necessarily saying the, the structure of the hierarchy is correct because really, as we've seen, it should be subject knowledge interweaved with, with, with critical thinking skills. 
But I think from that, it gives um, it gives a little bit of helpful context for thinking about how you might start to frame particular questions, and especially thinking around that analysis and evaluation piece. And then sort of the other thing is, and this is especially if you want to develop analysis and evaluation skills, is that there's there's a number of things out there to do with, and not sort of just thinking about mind maps, but thinking about how you, you help students to structure their arguments. So, for example, I'm a really big fan of argumentation, e-diagrams, which was originally created by Professor Michael Nussbaum and colleagues. And this, I mean, it's quite like the, the diagram is, is quite simple, but it really visually represents the fact that you want students to, to take a particular debate, to weigh it up, and then to really synthesise it and bring it back together. And sort of the, the biggest thing that I've really learned from my research is that as much as possible, you basically need to treat it a bit like subject knowledge. You really need to scaffold it and you really need to treat it almost in a step-by-step process. And that doesn't mean that the thinking will necessarily be really linear, but you need need to get students into a rhythm of of doing these particular steps, asking these particular questions, engaging with questions. And then what you will see over time is that organically, these things will happen without these particular learning aids. you know, to begin with, it's really difficult for anybody if you go in really deep with critical thinking without, you know, without thinking a little bit about some of the, the scaffolding and some of the support that you will put in place. It's so great that these practical approaches you have are simple. So much of it, these small things that we do. I mean, we, we also think they're small. And then when you actually do them, if you actually go back and look at your learning outcomes on a regular basis, Boy, that can be a really heavy, important mental exercise to do, but it just seems so simple. Oh, just go back and take a look. And you mentioned the Bloom's taxonomy, which, of course, has lots of debate around it. But even if we're going to debate it and recognize that there are different interpretations we can take, at least thinking about what is it specifically that we are asking students to do and why and how it maps to as authentic of a context as we can is just such a helpful exercise. Well, this is the point in the show where we each get to give our recommendations, and I'm going to start with one that is just pure joy and a second that's more of a practical resource that actually follows up on something you just shared. I wanted to share that I'm always careful about not recommending a book I haven't read or, or something I haven't watched or that kind of thing. I don't recommend things just based on having heard them. So as of the end of July... I have only seen two episodes of this new season of a television show, so I'm going to recommend at least the first two episodes, although I suspect it's going to continue to be great, of a television show that is called Ted Lasso, and it follows an American football coach, Ted Lasso, who heads to the UK to manage a struggling London football team in the top flight of English football. And it is just such a positive show. I have close to zero interest in sports. I don't watch them on television. I don't, this is not a big part of my universe. But, and so I I really, I took a while to get started on season one. And then once I did, just completely binged it. And so it's been really fun that it's back now. I've been, I put it in my calendar knowing that was coming out. It's just such a a positive source in my life. The main character, Ted Lasso, is really someone who has a unique, positive lens on life and draws out the strengths in others and has a great empathy for them and helps people bring out their best in the work that they do. So that's a real joy for me lately. 
And then I also, on a practical thing, wanted to recommend something I didn't know Lauren was going to tie so well with what you shared. And that is a report called Cognitive Science Approaches in the Classroom from the Education Endowment Foundation. And it is a review of evidence-based approaches and many of the things that you talked about earlier, such as retrieval practice, managing cognitive load, spaced learning, interleaving, etc. And I read through it and it's just very practical. Here are the techniques and then here's some ways that you can put them into practice. So those are my two recommendations. And Lauren, I'll pass it over to you for yours. Bonnie, we are in sync. That was my recommendation as well to do with the the cognitive science because it's just recently been published and it popped popped up on my Twitter and I was like, oh my goodness, this this is going to be a game changer. And then I, yeah, I sent it to loads of colleagues and I, I, I don't often do this, but I emailed the report to myself because I was like, teacher Lauren is definitely going to reference this report. So this, <laughs> yeah, this, this is it's so funny. This is what I was going to talk about as well. But as as you were talking, and I realized you were talking about the, the recommendation, I was thinking, what like what other what other recommendation would I have in um sort of I suppose sticking, sticking with the theme of sort of you know educational research. I think what's really important is the bridging, right? The bridging between, as I said, between research and, and practice. So I was just going to point to an example, uh, an example of an organisation that I think does this particularly well, which is an organisation called Research Ed, which originally was started in, in, in the UK. But, I, you know, they've gone global. They also do research ed conferences in the US uh, and also among other, other countries as well. And the the conferences are really good, and a lot of the attendees are, are teachers, so school teachers, but also they, they have some attendance from universities as well. And yeah, they're, they're just doing a whole host of really interesting things. So they've done, you know, they've done virtual conferences. I think they're starting to do conferences again in person, but you know, I don't I don't think it's necessarily about the necessarily about the conference attendance, just you know, sort of you know, broadly being a part of that movement and following people on Twitter, they, they've got some really interesting insights. So that, yeah, that was my last minute swap, but I, I was thinking, okay, from a, yeah, thinking about it from a community perspective, um, what would be a good recommendation for people to connect with? The, the other organisation I was going to mention was the Learning Scientists, but I, I feel like people are probably quite, uh, quite well versed because, yeah, I know it was sort of set up in the US and, it, and it's, yeah, extremely, extremely well, I'm going to add it to your list because it's not like there's a limit. I can We can have three. And just in case someone hasn't heard of them, they really do have some terrific resources and, and very similar to what you said about research ed, which I'm not familiar with, but where you get you blend the theory, the research with the practice, which is just so helpful to us that are trying to do this well. I'm cracking up, Lauren, because the way things have been going, I literally could have seen the report on your Twitter account, not even for <laughs> that's the way you know what we're reading late at night you know scrolling through twitter yeah. i mean it, it easily could have been that and i just didn't even make the connection i save things that's... to my bookmark tool although i do try to put the i don't know if you know the acronym h slash t which stands for hat tip that i'll put that in the bookmark so i'll go oh this came from josh eiler this came from lauren and so i didn't do that in this case but i i can't say i get it 100 percent of the time where i found something from 
<laughs> I think uh, I think just good news travels fast, so it's, I don't think it's that surprising that we, we we've both come across it and we're both very excited about it. Yeah, and well, you said it just came out too, so it makes sense that a lot of people are talking about it. It's really well done, so. Lauren, it has been such a pleasure to get to know you a little bit through this process. Thank you so much for answering my query. I first saw your article in the AAC&U and you mentioned them previously in our conversation. And I instantly thought, oh, gosh, we've only had one interview specifically about critical thinking. And it is so important to the work that we do. So thank you for your contribution. I'm so looking forward to continuing to follow your research and learn from you. And just thanks for sharing and investing in this community. Thank you. Yeah, it's been very interesting, very thought-provoking. Dr. Lauren Valera, thank you again for joining me for this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you'd like to access the show notes for today's episode, they're at teachinginhighered.com slash 377. Or if you're listening via a podcast catcher, the app on your phone or other device, you likely can just swipe over them to access those show notes. And if you'd like to have weekly updates from me with those show notes, come into your inbox along with links to other recommendations that don't show up on the podcast and other goodies, please subscribe to the weekly update at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. Thanks once again for listening, and I'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.